please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And as you are doing that, again, I just want to remind you what we're doing here from here on out. You know, in the past, the sermons were primarily handled by Dr. T, and the rest of us would just jump in occasionally. Well, since Dr. T has departed to heaven to be with our Lord, I suggested that instead of us taking turns and having you jumping all over the place with different series, that we'd kind of work as a team on just one series. Since Enro had just began the Gospel of John, that made the most sense. So, the two advantages to this is we'll get through John a little bit quicker. The other advantage is if one of us gets kind of stuck on something, he has the other two guys to go to for help, since we're all studying the same material. So I hope this series proves beneficial to you. But one of the struggles we might run into is where figuring out where one person stops and the other one picks up. As Enro just found out about 30 minutes ago, I did not stick to the plan. I was supposed to go to verse 34, but we're only going to make it to verse 28. So, sorry, Enro, it's just been a crazy week. Well, let's read John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this most sacred time when your word is open, declared, and explained, Father, I pray that you be with our people today. Teach us, convict us, encourage us, strengthen our faith. Lord, that we would be a people who would do all things to your honor and glory. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, and, you know, I've said this before, especially since we're at the beginning, still in the beginning phase of this series, is to read and or listen to the Gospel of John read over and over again throughout the coming months. So where an audio Bible really comes in handy, where I love them. Just let it play all the way through. Listen to the whole Gospel. It will take you probably around two and a half hours. The reason I suggest that is because it's always helpful to get a good look at the book as a whole before you go diving in to some of the details. It's kind of like when you're doing a puzzle. It's always more helpful to have that picture in front of you to know what you're working with, what you're working towards. You're able to start placing pieces uh, together quicker. The books of the Bible have purpose. 
The Bible as a whole has a design, a purpose. But even the individual books have their own design that plays into that bigger picture. And when you know the overall purpose of a book, it'll help you understand how the pieces fit. That is the blocks of verses that we preach on. Now, I'm sure there's going to be times when that connection won't be so obvious. But there are many cases it will. And today's block of text is a prime example of where I think that connection is clear. After all, what is the main purpose of the Gospel of John? Now, if you've been paying attention to in-row sermons and JP sermon, where they covered the prologue, you should have a pretty good idea of where this is going. It's implied, but it's not explicitly stated. However, John does explicitly tell us what his purpose is for this gospel. He tells us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now notice carefully what John said. He said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The purpose of this gospel is not to just give you some random facts about Jesus. In fact, there's some things John will leave out of his gospel that's included in other gospels. But rather, it's for you to know and to believe specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what does this word Christ mean? There was a time very early on in my Christian walk when I thought Christ was just Jesus' last name. I've met others who thought the same. Well, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. And that word comes from a word at root which means to rub, to anoint. And so Christos means an anointed one. One, a person anointed by God. A person would be anointed with oil to mark them as having authority or a special function. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word Christos would be used to translate the Hebrew word Mashiach, or as we say, Messiah, which of course means anointed one as well. And so John is telling us that the purpose of his gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, you may be thinking, all right, well, I know what Christ means now. Thank you. It means anointed one. And the Hebrew word Messiah is, is the equivalent. But I'm still not sure what that means. I mean, what's the big deal about identifying who the Messiah is? What is that even about? It seems like this was written to a people who already had preconceived ideas about a Messiah individual or persons. Well, that's true. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we are told this in chapter 3, verse 15, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And here in our text today, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? 
And one of the first things out of his mouth was to emphatically assert that I am not the Christ. So obviously, as Luke pointed out, there were expectations in the air about a Christ, a Messiah. The Jews seemed ready. They seemed to be waiting for some Messiah. In fact, in verse 45 of John 1, we read that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. And later on in John 4.25, the Samaritan woman, before realizing who Jesus was, tells Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now granted, there were numerous ideas floating around about the nature of the Messiah, that shock anyone? People disagreeing over the Bible? In fact, in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus specifically warned that false Christ would arise. He said, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Well, isn't that interesting? John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. And many went out to him. Is this the Messiah? There were a ton of messianic expectations floating around at that time. Different people had different ideas of what the Messiah would look like. There wasn't even agreement that it would even be an individual, maybe a collective group. And so it's in the midst of all this that John writes his gospel so that we would all know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why was this happening? Where did this idea of Messiah even come from? Well, as we've already noted in the Hebrew scriptures, you have this word Messiah, which refers to an anointed one. This word occurs 39 times in the Hebrew Bible. This word originates from a verb, which means to anoint or to smear. And anointing conveys uh, something, the idea of a designation or an appointment. Van Groningen writes, for example, that, quote, when Samuel poured oil on Saul's head, and informed him that the Lord had anointed him a ruler, the first and foremost, foremost idea was that of informing Saul that he had been appointed by the Lord. And so we read, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Kaiser goes on to state that the way that the title Messiah gained its technical sense happened as Saul was being rejected as king. Saul had been called the anointed of the Lord, but now David was God's anointed. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, 1 Samuel 16, 13. And David was called the Lord's anointed ten times. And yet, as Jared August points out, this concept not only related to the appointing of kings, but also to the appointing of prophets and priests. 
who had been anointed for service to the Lord. As such, in its initial Old Testament uses, the term seems to imply, uh, simply denote an individual who's been set apart and chosen by God for service. And so, for example, you read passages like Leviticus 6.22, the priest from among Aaron's son who was anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. And then in Psalm 105.15, we read, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Even the pagan king Cyrus was given this title. In Isaiah 45.1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Several people in the Old Testament were anointed by God to perform certain functions. And so, in this general sense, anyone anointed by God is a Christ. But nonetheless, God, God's people of old looked forward to the day when the Christ would come, the ultimate Christ, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Kaiser writes, the relationship of Yahweh with his anointed, the king, was cemented in the Nathan prophecy of 2 Samuel 7. Here, David and his line of kings assumed a unique position that guaranteed to him and to his reigning sons a kingdom that would be established by Yahweh forever. Without using the word Mashiach, Nathan represented a significant advance in the progressive revelation of what that concept of Messiah entailed. And so we read in 2 Samuel 7, that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with the fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, as Kaiser noted, the word Mashiach 
is never used here. But clearly, there's someone in view here. A son of David who will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise harkens back to the promise made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. In Genesis 12, Abraham was told, go, for, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 17, when Abraham was 90 years, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before, me and, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then again in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. But see, even then, these promises did not originate with Abraham. It goes back even further than that, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you recall, after Adam and Eve caved in to the temptation and ate of the tree that God had forbidden, the Lord then turns to the serpent and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here you have the seedbed, if you will, of all messianic hope. Here's the root of it. Here God promises that from the seed of the woman, there is one coming who, though being bruised on the heel by the serpent, which suggests suffering, but not defeat, he will nonetheless bruise the serpent's head, and bring victory over Satan. And regarding the nature of this victory over Satan and his seed, Jared Young writes, After God describes the curse brought upon the world, he cast Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He forbids them from ever re-entering. However, in light of the promise given in 3.15, they are left with the hope of a coming seed who will defeat the serpent and the serpent's seed. That is, the serpent's followers, ultimately including the serpent's influence in the world. And since the servant may be defined as the evil one, the promise of future victory over the serpent implies the defeat of the serpent's negative influence 
from the world. In other words, this victory includes the future destruction of evil. In view of the previously perfect state described in Genesis 1 through 2, through this promise, it is evident that this individual's victory will accomplish something great. Therefore, once the serpent is defeated and the world rid of its influence, the world, the world will be able to be brought back to its Genesis 1-2 state, in essence void of the effects of the curse, such as sin, sickness, death, and pain. Also, in view of God's relationship with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, where he dwelt with them freely, this promise seems to include not only a restoration of creation, but also a restoration of relationship. As such, from the content given solely in Genesis 3.15, within the context of chapters 1 through 3, the hope offered to Adam and Eve can be summarized as God's promise to accomplish three tasks. One, to destroy evil. That is, to defeat the serpent, his seed, and the influence of evil. Two, to restore creation. That is, to bring it to the state it was previously, void of all evil. And then third, to allow God to dwell with his people, just as he previously did with Adam and Eve. These three themes, says Jared, are alluded to and developed greatly throughout the rest of the Bible. As such, from the beginning, one can see that God's first promise is to send an individual who will come to restore the world. In these three tasks, God promises something great. He promises the future restoration of creation, the renewal of all things. Ultimately, in Genesis 3.15, God promises to bring the world back to the way it was. And I would add to that, actually even better than what it was. While nowhere in this passage is the term Messiah found, it is pointedly evident that Adam and Eve were given clear, anticipatory, and eschatological hope. End quote. Beloved, this was the promise given to Adam and Eve in the beginning. This was the promise reasserted time and time again with the patriarchs. This was the promise given to Abraham. This was the promise given to David. This is why you had that messianic fervor going on here in John chapter 1. This is where it's coming from. Also, recall that in Malachi, who brings an end to the Old Testament prophetic voice, so that Israel does not hear another prophetic word for over 400 years. Recall what he prophesied at the closing of our Old Testaments, that the wicked will finally be brought to an end. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Roughly 450 years goes by with no new revelation. 
Israel and the nations are left to wait and to prepare for this promised Messiah. And then this guy, John the Baptist, shows up, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, crying out, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, interestingly, he wore, according to Matthew 3, 4, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This sounds similar to what Elijah wore. As we read in 2 Kings 1.8, where he's described as one who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And then in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 3, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Again, is he the one? Is this our guy? Is this who we've been waiting for? Do you understand why this is coming up? Here he is preaching the kingdom of God and repentance. He's baptizing people. And baptism was going on in those days, but it was self-administered most of the time. And here he is baptizing others. He's even, addressed like, he's even dressed like Elijah. He's drawing massive crowds out to himself. Could John be the one? But beloved, remember the purpose of John's gospel. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not John, but Jesus, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Hopefully now, I think you can see how verses 19 through 28 now fit in this book. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Isn't that interesting? It's the first thing out of his mouth. I am not the one. Well, they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Kind of look like him. No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Maybe a reference to Deuteronomy, prophecy of Moses. He answered no. So they said, said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, then why are you baptizing? You're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And then John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So do you see how this fits? Do you see why the gospel, after its prologue, would start things off this way, with this story, with this testimony of John? Now, there are a number of things you could get into with this text. You could get into a big old long discussion about baptism and what exactly John's baptism was. You can get into why they would ask about the prophet, again, possibly allusion to Deuteronomy. And you can get into why they would bring up Elijah, which you've already hinted to. But the main thing that I want you to see here today is this, that John emphatically states, I am not the Christ. I'm not him. 
Again, John's purpose is to identify the Messiah. And here we have someone who some thought was the guy. And yet it is made emphatically clear John the Baptist is not the one. This harkens back a few verses earlier in the prologue in real cover where it says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But verse 8, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Yes, John was a man, a great man, a man sent from God even. But that's all he was, was a mere man. It was not John the Baptist who was God and with God in the beginning. It was not John the Baptist through whom all things were made and in whom was life and the life was the light of men. John was a witness. He testified. But the first thing he made abundantly clear was that he was not the Christ. But the priests and Levites weren't satisfied with that, so they kept pressing. Well, who are you? we got to give an answer to those who sent us. And then John gives them this positive statement. He identifies as one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what's great about this quote is that even though John is giving them a little something more besides just the negative, I am not the Christ, even in this positive statement about his identity, there is still this stark contrast made between who John is and who Jesus is. Even as John is positively identifying himself, he still wants you to know that he's not the one. Listen to Isaiah 40, from which John quotes. Verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now in John 1, he says, make straight the way of the Lord. The Greek word kyrios there for Lord 
It's a word that can be used of men in general. But understand the original context of Isaiah 40. This forerunner is preparing the way for none other than Jehovah God. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, verse 5. Behold your God, verse 9. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. And his reward is with him, and his recompense before him, verse 10. John the Baptist clearly wants you to see the great contrast here between him and the one who is coming. Even as important of a person that John the Baptist was in his role, the text says he was sent from God. Even as he is pushed to positively identify himself, John wants you to take your eyes off of him and to behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate, eternal word become flesh and who now dwells among us. Behold his glory. Behold the one who matters most here, the superior, the preeminent, the divine Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And of such a one, he would go on to say, I baptize with water, yes, but among you stands one you do not know. Recall verse 10, again, Israel covered this, that even though he made the world, the world did not know him, and even his own people did not receive him. But among you stands one you do not know, said John, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. According to the rabbi Joshua ben Levi, scholar of the Talmud, the disciple of a rabbi should do for his teacher anything that a slave would do, except this, take off his shoes, carry his shoes around. That was the job for a slave, not a disciple. Now, the rabbi was saying this around 250 A.D., However, some suspect that this principle may have been at work even back in Jesus' day. If that's the case, then I want you to notice what John the Baptist is saying here. Untying sandals and carrying them around for a rabbi is beneath the job of a disciple. That's for slaves to do, but I'm not even worthy to do that for this Messiah who's coming. What does that say? about this Christ. What does that tell you? Here in John, you have not only someone who knew who the Messiah was, but understood deeply the infinite gulf that existed between him as a mere man versus this one who was with God and is God, through whom all things were made. I just want to know today, has that registered with you yet? When you think of this Jesus, do you think of him as just some buddy of yours? Just some homeboy? I told you guys this before, I'll never forget. I was at a Bible study, Jacksonville State University. Guy opened up in prayer, we closed our eyes, and all I heard was, hey, homie, thanks for joining us. I looked up, I thought somebody had walked in late. That's how he was addressing God. 
I literally, I could feel the heat in my face. And I'm not even, I still thought Christ was his last name. Like, I'm still young, but even then I was, I was just furious and I just got up and left. And I told a couple guys, come with me. I don't want to be here when the lightning strikes. Does the thought of this Christ humble you to the dirt? Does the thought of him stir up in you a reverential fear that, hey, this is not my homeboy, but this is the eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most holy God? This same Apostle John would write about this Messiah in another letter, the Revelation, where he says this. He saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You ever tried to look into the sun? Even on a cloudy day. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Even in a vision of the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, John was dropped to the ground as though he were dead, as though he were nothing. Forget even taking off his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be alive in his presence. Beloved, I just want to know, does this reality of who Christ is fill you with that all, with that humility, with worship, with repentance. This is what John the Baptist wanted them to see and contemplate. And this is what John the Apostle wants us to see in his gospel. Right off the bat, behold your God. But you know, I love what follows in Revelation 1. When the Apostle John saw the incomparable Lord and fell at his feet as though dead, he says that the Messiah laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Even this glorious, incomparable divine Messiah whose dust-covered sandals we are not even worthy to touch, in whose presence we cannot even breathe. This glorious Lord comes with gentleness and grace for those who humble themselves, fear, and trust Him. Know that Jesus is not only the Christ, the Son of God, but that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, there were and there are those who will not receive this Messiah. 
In fact, we learn later in John 9 that the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And in John 12, we learn that many, even though the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were more concerned with the honor and praise and the approval of their buddies than they were with the honor, glory, and praise of God. Beloved, John the Baptist certainly wasn't. I mean, think of what he could have done with his popularity with these crowds. You talk about an influencer. And yet when he's pressed to identify himself, he says, take your eyes off of me and behold your God. And so I ask you in closing, is this your testimony today? When people watch you, when they listen to you, whether you're at home or at work, or you're just hanging out with your friends, is Christ made much of? Or do you cower in fear because you're concerned about what your friends or your family is going to think of you? Jesus said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So the Reformation Heritage Bible Study Bible asks this great question, the great determinative question we all must answer and do answer by our life and our actions is, who do you say that Jesus is? It is not enough to be able to recite the views of others. You must come to an inner conviction of, this, of his identity. He is the Christ. He is God's prophet, anointed to replace our ignorance with the knowledge of God. He is God's priest to take away our guilt for breaking God's law and give us a status of righteousness before him. And he is God's king to conquer our sins and rescue us from all that would harm us. Who do you say Jesus is? And are you trusting in him alone? Are you confessing him before men? That, I believe, more than anything, is what drove John the Baptist and as I said, that's what will drive this gospel of John. I think that's something we always need to keep in mind as we move forward in this gospel. Who do you say he is? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? And what does your life and your actions reveal in answering that? Let us pray.